My name is Nick Swan, the associate pastor here at Grace, and we are taking a couple week break from the Living Church series, which Marshall has been preaching on Acts 2.42 and following, and we've remained in the book of Acts, but last Sunday uh, we celebrated Ascension Sunday, and Chris preached on Acts 1. This week we are celebrating Pentecost Sunday, and I'll be preaching from Acts chapter 2. And before we begin, let me pray for us. Father, by the power of your Spirit, whom you have poured out on all of your people through Christ, May we have ears to hear this morning. May we have eyes to see. May we have hearts that are cut to the quick by your spirit. May we have minds that see you in fresh and new ways that we might know you and love you and worship you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. There are many good children's books that I have read with my children over the years, but one of my favorite books to read with them is a book called Fool Moon Rising. Not Full Moon Rising, Fool, F-O-O-L, Moon Rising. In this book, the moon is the main character. In this book, the, the moon tries to draw attention to himself. He is full of himself. He brags that he is so bright that he can make the darkness flee. That he can change shape throughout the month. That astronauts have danced across his face. That he could cause the sea to swell with the tides. And that among all of the heavenly bodies visible from the earth, he is the brightest light. The greatest light. But then a moment of humility comes to the moon. It says this in the book. He was arrogant until one day a piercing ray showed him a shocking sight, the light of the sun. He saw his pride, and then he cried for all that he had done. For he had lied when he denied his light came from the sun. So now each night a new delight is what he loves the most. Reflecting light with all his might, the sun is now his boast. This morning we are going to be learning about and seeing the role of the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit is much like the moon. The Holy Spirit's role is not to make much of himself. The Holy Spirit's role is to make much of Christ. The Holy Spirit's role in us isn't to make much of us through miraculous gifts and the outpouring of the Spirit. It is to point us and redirect our hearts to Christ. The role of the Spirit is also to bring humility to us, to cut us to the heart as our passage says, and in so doing to redirect our lives, our hearts, our minds, our worship to the Son of God who is faithful to save all who call upon him. Main point of our message this morning is this, the Holy Spirit points us to Christ and calls us to believe in him and live as his people. The Holy Spirit points us to Christ and calls us to believe in him and live as his people. Point number one, the Holy Spirit poured out. The Holy Spirit poured out. So last week, Chris taught from Acts 1, where Luke relates instructions just before Jesus ascends that the apostles and Jesus followers are to remain in Jerusalem and await the baptism in the Holy Spirit. In our passage this morning, that event has now come. Ten days later, the Holy Spirit falls upon God's people. And Luke tells us what happens. The apostles and the followers of Jesus, they're gathered together. Suddenly, sound like a rushing wind comes upon them. Tongues of fire appear and settle upon them. 
And then they are given the ability to speak in other tongues in such a way that all of the people gathered in Jerusalem from other nations now hear the mighty works of God proclaimed in their own tongue. Admittedly, these events are a bit strange to our ears. I was joking with Marshall that after the service, we're going to come forward. We're all going to speak in tongues together. We're going to have snakes up here. It's going to be tons of fun. I'm just kidding. He, he gave me that look as well. He's like, whoa. I was like, trust me, I'm not going there. But what is happening? This gift of tongues. What is happening? This, this strange event. Now, we know that this was foretold. John the Baptist said that Jesus is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus in John 16, he says, it's good that I go away so that the Spirit can come to you. He then tells them just before he ascends to wait. So we know that this is not an unexpected event, but I'm sure it was probably surprising the way in which it actually took place. It's it's somewhat odd. So what do we make of these signs and events? Well, the wind throughout the scriptures is a picture of God's power. And also the word for wind is the same one we have for spirit or wind or breath or inner life. So there's this picture of the spirit as something that's invisible that blows, that comes and goes as he sees fit. Think of John 3 where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. We then have this picture of fire and fire throughout the scriptures is, a, is something that purifies. So the spirit blows, it comes upon them and the spirit then purifies the people setting them apart for a particular task. We then have this miraculous sign of them speaking in tongues. And Luke spends the most time explaining exactly what happens with these tongues. Now to understand tongues, we need to have, we need to have two perspectives. We need to understand the context of Pentecost and what those tongues mean. But also the context of the entire scriptures. This is a much bigger redemptive historical moment in the life of the church. So we're going to start with what did it mean to those at Pentecost. And what does it mean for the bigger picture of what God is doing. So this event took place at Pentecost, which just means 50 days. It's 50 days after the Passover. It was a celebration where they would gather to celebrate the harvest. They would also commemorate the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Now, Jerusalem was always an international city, but when they would have these large Jewish festivals, Jews from throughout the Roman Empire would come from all of these different nations. So at this feast, there's a a gigantic influx of people, Jews, from all over the nations all over the known world of the time. And it's in this context that this miraculous gift of tongues is given. This gift gave these folks the ability to speak in human languages that were previously unknown to them. And as they did so, this international community that was gathered began to hear in their own tongue these people proclaiming the mighty works of God in their own language. So humorously, the crowd's first response, I'm sure that they were amazed at the tongues, but they were amazed that it it was Galileans that were speaking in all these different languages. To understand this, you have to know who the Galileans are. The Galileans are the farmers and the fishermen from the backwoods of Israel that had such a thick accent that they were frequently mocked. So picture some hick from the sticks who's standing there in overalls and bare feet and with a straw hat, suddenly stating, pardon, mademoiselle, parlez-vous français? <laughs> this, this is what it felt like to them, these hicks, these rednecks. Who are these people and why are they speaking all these tongues, the tongues of all of the nations? It was completely out of character for them. And more importantly, they were amazed at the content of what was spoken. These Galileans, in languages unknown to them, were proclaiming the mighty works 
of God. This whole scene was perplexing, and they were asking among themselves, what does this mean? And as always, there were some hecklers in the crowd who were just like, ah, these Galileans, they're just drunk. They're babbling. And so they're heckling them from the crowd as well. And so Peter, seeing that everyone is confused, some are mocking, he decides to seize this opportunity where all these people are gathered to address them and to explain exactly what's going on. So point number two, Peter's explanation. This is verses 14 to 21. So Peter begins by stating the obvious. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. These people are not drunk. Point number one. Point number two, rather what is happening is this is a miraculous fulfillment of the Old Testament prophet Joel. In verse 17, Peter quotes Joel 2. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, the last days are the time between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. And during these last days, God promises that he will pour out his spirit on all flesh. And what they are witnessing, what this crowd is witnessing, is the inauguration of that work. That the spirit is being poured out and what they are seeing is a fulfillment of Joel 2. And this spirit will lead to a knowledge of Christ. So you have people with prophecies and visions and dreams. And this knowledge of Christ given by the spirit, it's given to all people without distinction. Notice that it's given to men and women, the young, the old, the slave, the free. It's given to all who will call upon the name of the Lord. So this is the meaning here in the immediate context of Pentecost. But there's a bigger picture meaning, I believe, of what's happening in this moment in church history. And what church commentators throughout the ages have believed is that this outpouring of the Spirit with evidence of speaking in tongues that gathers all of these people around one gospel is a reversal of the events of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Now stay with me. Right now there's some of you are like, Babel, Genesis, what's for lunch? Stay with me. Hang with me. So for those who are unfamiliar with this story or need to be familiarized with it, let me give you a quick refresher. Genesis 11, mankind, speaking one language, arrogantly gathers together and they decide that they are going to build a tower to the heavens. And by this act, what they are doing is they are essentially shaking their fists at God. Humanity's hubris that we are as great as God, we can build this tower to the heavens. So God in his mercy and in his judgment... He confuses their language, scatters them so the work ends. And from this point forward, we have the world broken up into these various peoples and language groups. But in God's mercy, just one chapter later, he calls Abraham. And what promises does he make to Abraham? That he's going to make Abraham a great nation and that through that nation, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. So what we have here in Acts 2 with this outpouring of the gift of the Spirit... With all of these various languages being spoken, we see the reversal of the curse of Babel. That all of these people are now gathered together and they can together understand the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a fulfillment or the beginning of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. The promise to Abraham that through one nation all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through the outpouring of the Spirit, God is inaugurating the church age. Where through the gospel, God is calling all people and nations to himself. We see this global mission in Acts 1.8 where Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. With the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Christ's mission to make disciples of all nations has begun. 
And we see this mission expand throughout the book of Acts. We see the Samaritans come to hear the gospel in Acts 8 and the Gentiles in Acts 10. And then we have Paul's missionary journeys throughout the known world, culminating in him being on the doorstep of Rome, the capital of the known world. John Stott says it this way, Babel arrogantly ascended to heaven, but at Pentecost, heaven humbly descended to earth, bringing the good news of the gospel to every tribe, language, people, and nation. Now, tongues, they were a miraculous sign that symbolized something. They symbolized the unity of the gospel, the unity that the gospel brings. But I also want you to note that they accomplished something. Through this miraculous sign, the Holy Spirit was able to declare the mighty works of God. Go back to the opening illustration. What's the role of the Holy Spirit, like the moon is to the sun? It's not to bring glory to himself, but it's to reflect glory upon the Son. In this case, the Son of God. The role of the Holy Spirit is to point to Christ and to work in and through us to redirect our gaze to Christ. It's for this reason that Peter doesn't seize this moment to then encourage everyone to come forward and receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit with evidence of speaking in tongues. What does he do? He takes this moment when the Spirit has gathered everyone through this miraculous sign to then, through the Spirit, preach a message that proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ to all who will believe. Which brings me to point number three, Peter's sermon. Peter's sermon. So you've got all these crowds gathered through this miraculous sign. They're asking what's going on. Peter stands up. He explains what's happening. But then he takes this opportunity to tell them about Christ, who he is, what he's done, and how each and every one of them can receive salvation through Jesus Christ. He begins by attesting to the fact that Jesus was a man, and truly a man, whose ministry was divinely attested by miracles. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This same Jesus was put to death at the hands of wicked men according to God's purpose. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. By the hands of lawless men. So he's a real man, attested by miracles. He's been crucified and he was also raised. The same Jesus was raised from the dead, verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And Jesus' resurrection had been attested to by the prophets, which is why he begins to talk about Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is a psalm of David that talks about the Holy One of God not seeing corruption. And Peter makes the argument, look, clearly David wasn't talking about himself because David died and he was buried. And in fact, you all know where his tomb is to this day. Psalm 16 is not talking about David. It's talking about Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead and did not see corruption. And beyond that, you have the apostles who witnessed Christ. There are people gathered in that moment who had seen Christ risen and walking among them for 40 days. Peter then cites Uh, Psalm 110 to talk about how this Jesus who is raised is also ascended and exalted at the right hand of God the Father. And it's from this exalted position that he is now pouring out his spirit, which is what they are witnessing in that moment. Peter then concludes this sermon with these powerful and convicting words. 
Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. He's looking at the people who had witnessed the crucifixion of Christ. He is setting it at their feet. He was crucified for your sins at your sinful hands. And this Christ whom you crucified is Lord. He is God. And he is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior of Israel. So the Holy Spirit's miraculous outpouring had gathered the audience. Now the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of this gospel about Jesus Christ, does his most miraculous work in Acts 2. He brings conviction to the hearts of the P- Peter's listeners. Look at verse 37 with me. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? I don't want us to move on too quickly from this verse. You might have thought it was strange that I would say this was the most miraculous thing that happened in Acts 2. Nick, isn't it more miraculous that the Holy Spirit would be poured out, that people who don't know languages will speak in other languages and will proclaim the mighty works of God? Isn't that more miraculous? And I would argue this, that so often we are drawn to spectacle, and yet it's not spectacle that God wants us to be drawn to. We're drawn to Noah and the flood, and the ten plagues, and the Passover, and the parting of the Red Sea, and manna from heaven, and smoke and fire at Mount Sinai, and the walls of Jericho falling down. We're drawn to Jesus healing lepers, the paralyzed, the blind, him walking on water, him raising people from the dead, and the list goes on. But do you know how many people witnessed all of these miraculous events throughout the scriptures and yet did not believe? A whole generation of Israelites died in the wilderness having seen all of these miraculous events and yet not believing. There were all the religious leaders in the crowds of Jesus' day who had seen the mighty works that he had done. And yet not only disbelieved him, they hated him and they crucified him. Even one of his disciples betrayed him and others denied and ran away from him. Friends, to be cut to the heart by God's spirit and to call out for help, what shall we do? It is a miracle because it points to the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. That dead hearts are made alive. That spiritually blind eyes can now see. That deaf ears can now hear. It points to the power of the Holy Spirit to bring death to life. And to allow us to see, to humble ourselves. And to receive the gift of faith and repentance. If you are here this morning and you know in your bones that feeling of conviction. That you are lost That moment when you cried out to God, what must I do to be saved? If you have experienced that, do not take that for granted. It is the greatest miracle you will ever experience in your life. You were lost, you were dead, we were running from God. And in his mercy he made us alive so that we might see our sin and turn to Christ for salvation. There is no greater miraculous moment in your life that you will ever experience. If you're here this morning and you have not yet Experience this. You can. Christ is calling you even now through the proclamation of the gospel. And here's how you are to respond in this moment to the convicting work of God's spirit. Peter tells us in verse 38. Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. If you are here this morning and you want to be saved from the crooked generation of this world, God calls you to repent and to be baptized in the name of Christ. To repent means to turn from living for yourself to living for Christ. It's turning from living for your own glory, your own satisfaction, your own way, so that you might turn to him and receive the salvation that he offers. And he ties this to baptism because baptism is receiving by faith all of these promises. It's in the context of baptism that we receive what God says and believe that if we repent and believe that we will receive these two gifts, forgiveness of our sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you repent and believe, God promises you full and complete forgiveness. Pardon for everything that you have done. He also promises to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit, which can cleanse your conscience, remove your guilt and your shame, empower you to live a godly and obedient life, comfort you with the knowledge of God's love, and lead you into all truth that he might preserve you throughout this life. These are glorious promises offered to all people who will call upon the name of the Lord. Now Luke concludes this passage by recording the impact of Peter's sermon. Look with me at verse 41. For those who, so those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. What I want to draw your attention to with this last verse here at the end of this message is... That when they were saved, they were added to something. Namely, they were added to the church. When God's spirit is poured out upon us, when he convicts us of our sin, when he leads us to repentance and faith in Christ, the spirit also adds us to a people, the church. That's why baptism is spoken of here. Baptism is the sign and seal of our inclusion, that we are a part of God's people, the church. And it's in the context of the church that we live out a spirit-empowered life. God pours out his spirit that we might look more and more like Christ and proclaim Christ to the world around us. It's no coincidence that immediately following these verses are the verses that Marshall has been preaching on about what it means to be the living church. When the spirit is poured out upon us and adds us to a people, we then live as God's people, his living church. Friends, this Sunday is... Pentecost Sunday. Maybe you've been reminded of God's generous outpouring of his spirit upon us. And that this gift of the Holy Spirit is meant to point us to Christ. It's the work of God's spirit in us that calls us to believe in him and live as his people. May we never take for granted the gift of salvation which the spirit gives us. And may we never take for granted the people that the spirit has added us to. That we are enabled to live as God's people living out his mission to proclaim this gospel to all the nations. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you can do by your spirit what all the signs and wonders and miracles of the world could never do. You can bring dead hearts to life, open blind eyes, and unstop deaf ears. I pray that we would celebrate and rejoice that you have done that in the hearts and minds of so many gathered. And I pray that you would do this 
in the hearts of some gathered here this morning. Father, soften hearts, draw them to yourself, save them, and add them to your people, I ask in Christ's name. Amen.